Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. It's the final word story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon with you for another weekend gallop through the history of our game. It's a big weekend for our other game as well, Jeff. It's grand final eve for Australian football. An unusual grand final, of course, being played in Brisbane. Uh, your Geelong, your mighty Geelong, uh, playing Richmond in the decider tomorrow night at the Gabba of all places. Unfortunately, though, it's the city where you've been for the last six or seven weeks and you won't be uh, there for the grand final. You've relocated to Sydney for the Women's Big Bash. That must sting. It's it's a, a, a fairly devastating blow that things uh, turned out that way. Well, it's also a lovely thing to be doing cricket commentary on the Sunday. But yeah, in, in normal times, I would have just been on a 6am flight down on the Sunday morning, no problem. But there's literally like one flight per day per carrier and none of them leave anywhere remotely early enough. There were ones that were almost early enough out of Byron Bay if I were to drive down there but still not quite like you know off by about half an hour <laughs> and so then I was looking at options like I was like can I drive there it's about 10 hours and I have 12 hours in which to make the trip which would mean driving all night and then commentating two games back to back and I thought that would probably not be professional then I thought like <laughs> what if I hire someone to drive me while I sleep in the car but I, I also forgot about you lose an hour when you come down because it's not daylight savings in Queensland, but it is. So actually you only oh, have 11 right. hours to make the 10-hour drive. So I was thinking, all right, if I blow a tyre or something on the way down, then, you know, not turning up to be there for commentary when you've been rostered would probably be a bad look. So in the end, um, it's going to have to be television, I'm, I'm devastated to say. But uh, I, I reckon if I'd made... How are you planning on... I mean, given... What are the... I mean, given the limited restrictions mm. in Sydney, at least that'll mean you can watch it with other people. Yeah, I, I can, although I can't say I, I know a large coterie of Geelong supporters in Sydney. So if you are one, <laughs> you probably won't hear this show in time, but, you know, <laughs> give me a shout anyway. Um, yeah, look, it, it's... I, I figured that if I went to some obscene effort and, like, chartered a plane or something 
then they would definitely lose. So I, f- I figured it, it's better to, to give them the chance of winning um, and, and, and watch uh, from afar. The superstition of the football supporter. you got to love it. I'm trying to think what I would do in your situation. Uh, I mean, obviously, I would have gone through the same options that you have. Mm. I, I think, I yeah, hiring someone to have done the drive. I drove back through the night from Sydney to Melbourne once and went back to work on the, on the, mm. on the Monday morning, which was fairly stupid. So... I suppose it could have been done, but yeah, the risk factor is just too high I, that you'll have an accident. I would have happily. No, I mean, like I could do the long drive. I'd happily do it if I didn't have to do something important the next day, which involved my brain yeah. and thinking and speaking at the same time. Um, so yeah, the, if I just had to get there, that would have been fine. But the way it panned out, look, if if I had a shift in the chicken shop, put it that way, I, I would have been driving and, and showing up to work. But, <laughs> but I think you've you've got yeah, to the, show uh, the game it, the respect it deserves by not showing up on zero hours sleep. Like um, some have been known to do in the past. I've got a surplus car as well, which was just on national television. Actually, I'm not sure if you caught the clips on 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 Twitter, but uh, the, the the footy show slash um, fundraiser they do for kids cancer on Grand Final Eve at Channel Nine. We loaned them the Batmobile for the night, so it was driven in <laughs> with Billy Brownless on the back of it, singing "Bound for Glory" <laughs> to help uh, raise money for for kids uh, kids cancer charity. So um, glad that it's being able to be put to good use. Uh, of course, that was the previous time a Grand Final wasn't played at the MCG back in 19. 19- so a nice little link and if you want to learn more about that grand final there is my other podcast the greatest season that was we've done a mini series on that game but more likely than not you're here for the cricket rather than the footy so let's crack on with that before doing so i'll note that we're having a conversation with tim wigmore after we finish story time today, Tim is a friend and colleague of Jeff and mine. He works at the Telegraph in England. He's written a number of books. They've all been excellent. And his latest book is about trying to work out what makes a brilliant sports person, going behind the curtain a little bit and finding out what they have in common. So we had a conversation about that. Uh, and Jeff, with all of that said, now introduction done, I think it's time for some... No. Pledge! Oh, it's Nerd Pledge. It's the game that we play with people on our patron page where they graciously support the show in trivia form. They send us a number of dollars and cents that's not just arbitrary, that's specific. It relates to a cricket number and then it's up to us to work out what the cricket number is. And in doing that, we've started to explore, to journey deeper and deeper into the historical backwaters of the great game that we love the great game of cricket as Michael Clark had to, co- it, was, it was contractually obliged to call it every time. He couldn't just say, <laughs> I enjoy playing cricket. He has to have to say, I enjoy playing the great game of cricket. This is what the great game of cricket has taught me. The great game of cricket has given me so much. So, so in, in honor, in honor of Michael, if, if, if someone were to put that to me, to ask me that question, I would consider my answer. Uh, thank you, Michael. Uh, the first number... No doubt about it. No doubt about no it. Doubt no doubt about, about it. But you've got to say no doubt about it all as one word. It's N-A-D-A-B-A-D-I-T. <laughs> no doubt about it. Um, that's how it gets done. And so that is what we will do. We'll look at some new numbers first that people have sent in over in the previous months. And the first of those is John Tucker. And the number is a very recognisable number if you have been watching the Kings Eleven Punjab play in the IPL recently one player in particular who bears it on his back. That number is $3.33. He doesn't actually bear it with the dollar sign, although he might come to that pretty soon. Uh, That's (laughs) the number that Chris Gale wears on his back, 333, because that's a test score that he made. It's also a test score that Graham Gooch made. 
and they are the two who've made 333 in test cricket. And so you know, my, my first inclination is that John Tucker is probably going for one or the other. Probably. Almost certainly, I would say, he's going for either Gooch or Gale, <laughs> given... Uh, but, but I'll go somewhere else yep. uh, to, to kick us off. We can uh, rely on you to the do The 333rd that. test cricketer for England was Johnny Wardle, who was a left-arm spinner after the war. Indeed, he sort of found the game during the Second World War, and I say found it, I'm sure he played before, but that's when he came to prominence, and uh, sadly, uh, when Hedley Verity died, there was a position there at Yorkshire for a spinner, and, and he uh, took it on in the years just following, so he made his debut in 1947, and shortly after that, he was straight into the England team, uh, and across his nine years of playing international cricket, albeit not as often as he would have necessarily liked, given there are a couple of blokes in Laker and Locke who often would get in the way, but he finished with 28 test matches and the lowest bowling average of any recognised spinner uh, who's played a minimum of 20 tests since World War One, He took his wickets at 20.39 across 28 test matches. And he bowled principally left-arm orthodox, but also would turn his hand at um, bowling some left-arm wrist spin as well uh, for England. But he was a he was a controversial figure as far as he ha- he, he, he certainly uh, didn't hold back when he felt as though he should have been playing more test cricket. And it all culminated in a, in a piece he wrote for the Daily Mail in 1958, where he got stuck into everybody, both at England and at Yorkshire, ended up losing his place on the tour for the 58-59 Ashes <laughs> series and, and losing his spot with Yorkshire as well. So he went out in a blaze of glory, but uh, he'll always maintain... Uh, uh, that little well not always there may be a spinner who emerges that does better than uh, 20.39 a piece for their wickets but I can't imagine it the, the way that we've seen great spinners they bowl a lot of overs and as a result they don't tend to in test cricket anyway have averages that get anywhere beneath about 25 but he got his at inside 21 Johnny Wardle so are you telling me you, I just need to clear this up are you telling me that the Daily Mail ran an incendiary piece that was a bit of a hatchet <laughs> job on people who possibly didn't deserve no. it I, I can't I find no, that I, very I think, hard I to think, believe it's true as your assertion is uh, I think that uh, Johnny may have written this himself yeah but I mean, but but you're saying that that paper was so irresponsible that they said oh we'd like to ruin somebody's career by allowing them to to publish this in our <laughs> pa- it just doesn't telly with you know with the daily mail that i know let us know, John Sucker. Good start with uh, three dollars thirty-three. Are we right? Are we wrong? Was it so simply Graham Gooch? We'll find out next week. All right. Next on our list, a, a returning nerd pleasure who's done a bit of an edit. This is Schmicko. Uh, dogs go wacko. Dogs go wacko for Schmicko. <laughs> and Schmicko has sent through three dollars sixty-eight. Uh, what might three six eight in sequence or separately indicate in a cricketing sense, Adam Collins? I didn't have loads for this. Uh, Matthew Elliott, who we both followed so closely when we were kids, the big, tall, elegant left-hander. You can learn more about the advantages of being left-hander in my conversation with Tim Wigmore later on, by the way. Not just traditional left-handers, but right-handers who who become left-handers, but I digress. He was the 368th Australian men's cricketer. Abdul Carter took 368 wickets across tests and one-day internationals for Pakistan, of course, uh, before passing away early last year. But 
that's as far as I got, and, and neither of them feel overly compelling because I don't think adding tests and one-day wickets together. I mean, it, it, you know, I've done it, but I don't think I don't think Schmicko's done. I've it. done it. You've done it. I mean, we've done. Let's be honest. We've done it. We've done it privately. We've done it together. Um, we. It's, it's not a first for either of us, and that's fine. We should. This is this is a forum where we can be open about these things. I had a little callback in my mind, and I, this probably doesn't doesn't work up chronologically because Schmicko probably put the number through before we had this conversation, but I'd like to think not. In my head, whatever we've just talked about is related to the number that's come through. And we spoke last <laughs> week about the current uh, occasional Indian batsman and sort of all-rounder, Hanuma Vahari. Hanuma Vahari. Boop. What a wonderful phrase, duh, duh, duh. Hanuma Vahari. And he just makes you feel better when his name comes up because, you know, you sing that song and you remember that being a stinky warthog doesn't mean that you can't find yourself a, a charming, tiny best friend. And, and it's good to remember that sometimes in life. But Hanuma Vahari, uh, who's played, I don't remember, about 20 tests, I reckon. So he's played a, you know, had a, a reasonable swing of the bat by now. Test batting average is 36.8, 368, Hanuma Vahari. So that's where I'm going for this one. Nice start. Shmiko, let us know how have we gone. Next up, Louise Southall, $1.90, Jeff. $1.90. So $1.90 is a score. I'm thinking maybe this is, is coming in from England and maybe it's the score that Giuseppe Root made his first test as captain uh, when he ascended to that position, uh, that that lofty position at Lords in 2017, which is, you know, it's quite a big moment when it's that ground and that's your first game and all the rest of it and can you do it? And on that day he could and I would probably argue that since then he hasn't done quite so much. Uh, but 190 in his first test as skipper, that, that seems like a reasonable shot for me. Yeah, I remember that day, uh, not only because it was Root's first in, in the job as England captain, but it was when they brought back the cable knit jumpers, but they got the colour wrong. So the jumper and the shirt were distinctly different. I think for, at, from memory, they were still going They were still going with the white shirt, but the cream jumper and it looked ridiculous mm. and Root was batting in that combination for most of his innings. I'm going to stay at Lords. I mean, it's Richie Beno's cap number, but let's overlook that because we talk about Richie Beno quite a lot. 190 at Lords 12 years before uh, that 2017 innings from Joe Root, of course, was the first test match of the 05 Ashes. And Australia were all out for 190 on that first morning. Mm. I wrote about that innings uh, during lockdown for The Guardian and why it was my favourite day of cricket ever that I've attended um, 43 overs of absolute bedlam as you know of course uh, Langer and Ponting are cut open Harmison takes five wickets bowling like the wind Simon Jones outstanding Flintoff uh, when he comes into the attack and then Australia reply of course by taking seven wickets before the close including McGrath's 500th and Brett Lee has Ashley Giles standing on his stumps with the final ball of the day McGrath takes five wickets bowling down the slope it was just an incredible day to be there for worth every penny of the 300 and I think it was 325 pounds or 350 pounds I paid a scalper um, to go along uh, on that day I managed to engineer that a couple of weeks before the test through a some third-party scalping website and <laughs> 
Anyway, I tell that I tell that full story on the Guardian. But the the guy who got me the ticket and was looking after me in two thousand and five, who who sadly passed away um, later that year in two thousand and five, he also got me playing some games of cricket for a village in Lincolnshire called Baston that year. And I remember on on day three of that Lord's Test match in 05, I turned out for Baston, and it was a pretty famous victory for the club it was their first win in two years and chasing plenty and, and all the rest and during the week I received an, a, a Facebook messenger message from someone that wasn't a friend of mine but who'd played with me that day and had seen uh, this photo in a pub taken a photo of the photo as it were <laughs> with us standing around the scoreboard after the win and, and wanted to just confirm that I'm the same person who, who played in that game which I was happy to confirm that it was me <laughs> and it was a, a lovely part of my experience being in England in 2005 kind of mixing going to cricket and, and playing cricket but yes it was all in that same week the 2005 Ashes Lords Test Match where Australia on the first morning were all out for 190 190 thank you Louise Southall our next new number it's a double header it's a great number. What a number this is. Always delights me when I see this number come up in the list. The number is $2.16, 216 It came in first from Michael W. Fallon, and then a, a great supporter of the show, Ilya Andrews, also put this number through recently and, and thus comes up the list to join Michael Fallon in this double header. And you need two shots at this number because it does mean two very different and very important things in an Australian cricket context. Ilya told us that he changed this number in honour of Dean Jones, whose highest test score was 216, which is, you know, obviously we've spoken a lot in the last few weeks, Adam, about Dino, TM, trademark, because you can't call him anything else. That's his name, Dino, forever. So, so it's nice to see another little marker for Dino come through. Yeah, and it was a nice message from Ilya as well, which, which talked about how he changed his pledge after listening to our Dino special when he passed away. So I'm glad we were able to do that. But Michael W. Fallon, his pledge came in well before that. So I expect that it's another um, final word, uh, beachhead of sorts. We've talked about 216 quite a few times. Not enough. It's a number that relates to your favourite player. Clarence... Grimmett. We haven't talked about Clary Grimmett enough on this show, frankly. We should have spent more time devoted to the great Australian leg spinner because Clary Grimmett took 216 test wickets, and that's significant on its own, but that's more significant in that he was the first player to ever reach 200 wickets. That didn't happen in those days. So, you know, Clary Grimmett was taking his wickets in the 1920s and 30s. And up to that point, you know, people didn't play that much test cricket. Don Bradman played for 20 years and played 52 test matches. You didn't get the opportunity nearly so often. And so the opportunity to take 200 wickets didn't come up unless you were fucking good at bowling because you took more wickets faster than everybody else and that is exactly what Clary Grimmett did. If you look at the way the world record holder for wickets developed, in the first test you've got Elf Shaw and Tom Kendall who sound like they should be characters of Australian soap operas. You know, Elf, what are you doing? Oh, Tom, Tommy Kendall came in and took eight wickets in the first ever test match in, in 1877. So they're the, the world record holders after one test. Kendall is, has it for himself, he's got 14 wickets by the end of the second ever test. Fred Spofforth played in that second test and then had the lead with 13 wickets by the third. So Spofforth finishes with 94 in his career. Johnny Briggs 
breaches 100 for the first time and finishes with 118. Hugh Trumbull gets to 141. Sid Barnes gets to 189. And that's kind of a, a freak number because he has this crazy series against South Africa, I think, where he takes 46 wickets in four test matches. Just absolutely bonkers sort of holes, uh, which propels him to 189. But even that's not 200. And then comes Clary. So he bags 11 wickets in his first test. After 10 tests, he's got 57 wickets. After 20, he's got 112. So he's going at very consistent numbers. After 30 tests, he's got 157. And then in his last seven test matches of his 37-match career, he picks up seven, then eight, then five, then six, then 10, then 10, then 13. And then gets dropped for Frank Ward. <laughs> Frank bloody Ward, who couldn't take a wicket to save his life and couldn't even get picked on the tour that he pushed Clary out for because Don Bradman, something, something, club cricket, I don't know, Catholics and Freemasons, who knows. But that's how this wonderful test career comes to an end at 5.83 wickets per test match. Nobody does that. Really good bowlers take four wickets per match on average over a career. Shane Warne, 4.88. Very good, very high as a leg spinner. Clary Grimmett, nearly six wickets per test match. Absolutely obscene. Nobody does it. Nobody does it. But Clary did it. 216 wickets in. I didn't realise that he took 33 wickets in his final three test matches. I know that he started as an older an older cricketer before he got his chance to play for Australia and, and thus he was, uh, you know, he, he was getting long in the tooth. But as we've talked about on Storytime time and time again, that was an era when older spinners did so well. I mean, he couldn't have been dropped on those grounds. You've told the terrible story of Frank Ward before. But even on that, I mean, what, what's there, there must be more to this. How's he getting dropped after 33 in his final three tests? Well, because Bradman said, oh, it was only South Africa. Oh, they're not very good. Oh, you know, 33. Well, they don't really count. Oh, they don't count. Why don't you give back all your hundreds against India in 1948 then, Don? <laughs> I didn't see you crossing those out after record book. They were absolute shit. They didn't have any bowlers. They had poor Vino Mancat trying to do it all by himself. It was impossible. And yet, you know, no problem, cash in and take the runs off them. But, oh, Clary takes some wickets against South Africa. No, they don't count. Or have you seen Frank Ward? He took three wickets in backyard cricket the other day. He took wickets in a <laughs> testimonial game. Who cares, Don? <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, that's, uh, that's the end of that. That's 2.16 for Michael W. Fallon and Ilya Andrews. Beautifully done, Jeff. And thank you again to Ilya and to Michael. We move on to $2.61261 from Sam Littlejohn. We've, we've had 261 in the past, and I've immediately uh, leapt at this and talked about Frank Worrell and his highest score in Test cricket. So 261 at Trent Bridge in 1950, a watershed series for the West Indies. Of course, they, they won at Lords to get the party started. It was the first Test they'd ever won in England and ended up taking the series uh, 3-1. On the day in question, uh, Worrell walked in with the score 95 for 2 at Nottingham and walked off with the score 521 for 4 to make sure that they go on to win uh, by 10 wickets. But we, we've talked about Worrell and Weeks in the context of 1950 before. Just a, a nod for and Valentine. Who, who took 12 of the 20 wickets in that test, but took 59 wickets between them in four test matches. So 59 of the 80 available wickets in Whoa. the entire series were courtesy <laughs> of those two men. No one else in the West Indies team or squad took more than six. So that's wow. the story there in a nutshell. <laughs> Ramadan and Valentine destroying England in 1950 and Frank Worrell, the start of what would end up being a brilliant career uh, making 2-6-1 at Trent Bridge. And I thought I also should mention, Jeff, each week 
uh, we have uh, seemingly a link to Wilfred Rhodes. A bit like Bradman. How can you not mention a player as statistically prolific as Wilfred Rhodes? Well, our link this week is that he picked up 261 wickets in a season in 1900. The most he ever took in a season in 1900. So that's the year after his test debut, also at Nottingham, uh, coincidentally. But he went on to take 251 in 1901, 213 in 1902, so a hat-trick of 200 wicket seasons there as a younger man. He went on to keep topping 100 time and time again. He ended up taking in excess of 100 wickets in 1928 and 1929, which guaranteed that he'd get on that tour to the West Indies in 29.30. We've talked about his final test in April 1930. Well, we talk about it most weeks in one form or another, uh, but that's the back end of his career. And even in 1930, when he goes home from that, his final season of cricket with Yorkshire, he picked up 74 wickets at 19, just to finish off as a 53-year-old. Bonkers. <laughs> Can I share something with you? Every time Wilfred Rhodes comes up, the first thing my brain links it to is Cecil Rhodes instead, who was the um, <laughs> rapacious colonist who, <laughs> you know, stole a lot of money from Africa. Uh, but what it makes me think of is there was a uh, probably a BBC miniseries in the 90s perhaps called Rhodes of Africa, which was a story about Cecil. And I remember watching this as a kid on TV at home and the only thing I remember from it was that there was a line, there was like a, a party of boisterous men having drinks around a table and I think it's probably Cecil Rhodes because he's kind of a prick, uh, says to bellows at some young man across the table, he says, Why don't you grow a moustache, boy? People will mistake you for a girl. And I just remember, I remember watching this with my, with my family, with my parents and my sisters and all of us just losing our minds over it was we've just it destroyed us it was hilarious and so it's become one of those family tradition lines that to this day you can walk into a room and say why don't you grow a moustache boy and people will know what you're talking about so anyway i just thought i would share that as you should sounds like a great family tradition and if they ever wanted to perhaps rename the road scholarship not outside the realms of possibility well they can keep it as the road scholarship and just tweak it and make it after our man Wilf instead. I think that'll work. It's, a, it's much better roads. Definitely the best, best of the roads. They should probably the roads department should sort this one out. Our next new number, thank you, Sam, comes in from Nathan Clulo, and the number is one dollar and two cents, one o two. And true to his name, Nathan Clulo has been low on clues. He has not given us a clue, and that's fine. We don't need a clue. We, we like, uh, we like the, the freedom of the blank canvas to start with. And I would like to suggest, Adam, not with any particular agenda of mine, but 102 is Donald Bradman's smallest test hundred, his least impressive statistically test hundred, his, his tiny weeny little mini test hundred. Oh, 102. Oh, you got a hundred. How cute. 102. Aww. Oh, look at his little hundred. He made that at... The mini century. He made that at Lords in 1938, just two years after he had betrayed his nation by sacking Clary Grimmett from the Australian <laughs> Test team. In 1938, uh, Australia needed 315 in the last innings to win and Braddles took off after it. He, it close to a run of ball, really. Well, ish. Probably strike rate of 80, I guess, looking at it was 100 off a 130-odd. In the end, Australia lost six wickets to the other end and finished with a draw, 111 short. Bradman, not out. Didn't didn't get the job done, Don. 102, if you'd made 
2.02-something, then you might have got close, but he didn't do it. Uh, at 1.02, I thought of the second Michael Bevan miracle when he single-handedly beat New Zealand, coming mm. in at number seven from memory as well uh, in early 2002 at the MCG, or to tick the maxi box as well, uh, Glenn Maxwell, of course, made uh, 1.02 uh, against uh, Sri Lanka in the World Cup of 2015. But I like to, as you know, Jeff, finish a nerd pledge where we start it, where at all possible. And I mentioned Johnny Wardle, took his test wickets at 20.39 for England between 1947 and 1958 or whatever it was. Well, he picked up 102 of them. So, thanks for coming. Nathan Clulo, 102. Uh, If that's not it, if none of our guesses are it, you can always let us know. Send us a message in the patron DMs, which if you've signed up, you can do. And if you want to play Nerd Pledge and send us one of these new numbers through, it's very easy, patron.com slash the final word for as long or as short as you would like. You can set your number and you can help us keep doing this fairly ridiculous program week in, week out. And by signing up to the Patreon page, you'll get the golden ticket to our Stuart McGill live Zoom show. We're still just ironing out when that's going to be exactly, but it'll be in early November. Jeff will probably be there with McGilla and we'll be down the Zoom page. So if you're a patron of ours already, fantastic. If you're not, wonderful time to sign up. You'll be able to tune in live to that program uh, when we put it together. Alternatively, we'll put it straight on the Patreon page as soon as it's done, and you'll be able to watch it in your own time. But we'll have plenty of opportunities for question and answer and, and chatting to McGilla uh, through the course of that evening. It'll be nighttime for Australia, mid-morning UK. I, I suppose in many cases we're in various forms of lockdown still, so hopefully whatever time we do it will work for a lot of people. And he's been excellent uh, in terms of supporting the final word and supporting what we do. So I'm sure he'll be a great guest and we're very much looking forward to it. Now, let us cast our eye back over some numbers we may not have got right in the past. We're not perfect. We don't claim to be. We'll never make that promise. Uh, But look, we're never going to give you up. We're never going to let you down. We're never going to run around and desert you. And the reason I say that is because we don't just have one guess. If we get it wrong, we go back and we do the work and we try to find it out. And if we get that wrong, we go again. And if we get that wrong, we go again. And if we get that wrong, your name is Rob O'Neill and you have the longest running nerd (laughs) pledge in history. This one has been going on for a while as well. Luke Kneebone, we've been back and forth in the DMs. Luke and his son Harper sent this number through and and it was a bit cryptic and a bit vague. It was 176 to start with and, Adam, you spoke about George Headley at length. I spoke about Shane Watson's career best test score and Luke sent us a message that said that my guess was closer in terms of era, statistical record, role in the team and public perception. It said, um, unlike Watto's Day Out, our number incorporates the highs and lows of the game. The depth of research required to write a book is the reason I suspected that Jeff would be most likely to get close to it. So quite a few hints in there. And what that tells me is era statistical record role in the team and public perception, it kind of has to be Mitchell Marsh, right, if you're talking about a maligned all-rounder who doesn't quite live up to their uh, public expectation. And then if you're talking about the research required to write a book, that happens to be about a tour of South Africa, perhaps it's about Mitchell Marsh on a tour of South Africa In 2018, when Australia last played tests there, Mitchell Marsh started beautifully in a win, made 96, 
and then faded as the losses mounted and ended up making, in that series, 176 runs. A series that incorporated the highs and the lows. And then he went to the UAE and made about four runs in four hits and got dropped from the team. That is my punt, Adam. Mitchell Marsh, his series tally in South Africa, 176. Yeah, to think that he made 176 across that series after making 181 in a day, really, at the Wacker earlier in that season against England. It was a roller coaster ride for Mitch. He ended up with the vice captaincy after that South African series, of course, as well, for the UAE tests that followed. But I don't think he retained the vice captaincy job after that. He might have had one more bite of the cherry uh, in Australia the following summer when he got back into the team for Melbourne, if I recall correctly. But Yes, it was a short stint with him, with VC next to his name. Our next revisit is for 209. Jay Rizzle on Twitter, who I assume is James Roder. We've had a couple of 209s, but I think James Roder would be Jay Rizzle. For his 209, we had Karen Rolton. We had Chris Rogers making 209 for Leicestershire. There was a VVS Laxman link. There was a Mark War link as well. But Jay Rizzle said, forget all of that. He replied, in light of there being no statute of limitations on Nerd Pledge, you got my 209 wrong about a month or so back. And his hint is it was inspired by the season of the greatest season that was that he was listening to at the time. Now, I assume that means that he was listening to the greatest season that was presents US Revolution, where Shannon Gill, along with Mason Cox and Ed Wyatt, went back and tracked the history of uh, Australian football in America and, and vice versa. So I'm thinking that it's probably something to do with 209 and American cricket. Mm. Unfortunately, my early research hasn't hasn't dredged up much so I'm struggling a bit here but I'm going to throw this out to the team we usually send one of our nerd pledge numbers back to the crowd and see if you can help us during the week and how can you stitch together 209 and America Jeff you got any thoughts if if it did mean America so when I saw the greatest season that was the most prominent series that you guys have done is probably the one on the 1999 World Cup semi-final and so that was my first thought where I thought well 209 was the score that South Africa ah. was on when Lance Klusner smashed that boundary in the last over when he when he hits Damien Fleming for four through the covers and they've got what four balls left and they only need a run to win that's I was is it you know oh that's that's far more logical because okay that one off so at the special we made on the World Cup semi-final of 99 which came out 12 months after the series finished just due to the logistics of pulling together something as big as that that was probably out the same time as US Revolution so that mm. is actually on reflection probably it 209 Lance Klusner instead of throwing it back to the crowd we'll throw it back to you Jay Rizzle how have we gone uh, the only other thing that I could find because you, you did send me through a suggestion saying is there a link between 209 and cricket in the United States of America what I know is that if you want to ring up the board if you want to call USA cricket the official entity in charge of running the game in that country you pick up the phone and you dial 209-5420 that's their local number it starts with 209 so maybe James Rodder you've just been giving a call to USAC I, I can't I can't um, guarantee it one way or the other who knows who would pick up given the volatility they have at board level at USA Cricket. That's a story <laughs> for another final word episode. Thank you, nevertheless, Jay Rizzle, for coming back to us and we'll go again next week, I suspect. $4.05, so four oh five. Matthew Share. He came back. Well, we said, among other things, uh, when England beat Pakistan 
in Karachi in the dark in, in 2000 that Pakistan had made 405 before England ended up winning the test match. But Matthew said we need to, need to look more at England domestic cricket. Yeah, Matthew said he was a, um, a 90s England cricket survivor like Emma John, so that, that gives a, a certain sort of hint and inclination that this has to be the highest first-class score of Graham Hick. Uh, Graham Hick made that 405 for Worcestershire, and now by, by a sort of coincidence, we have talked about all of the highest scores ever made by a Worcestershire player over the last few weeks. <laughs> I don't even need to look them up to remember it because you've got the 287 from Tip Foster at the SCG in 1903, I think. Then you've got the 298 made by Daryl Mitchell, <laughs> which was the subject of a pledge some weeks ago. Then you've got the 311 by New Zealand's Glenn Turner, uh, who we also spoke about recently when he had champagne at the crease. And then you've got three scores by Graham Hick, which are all with a couple of 300s and the 405. And the 405 is bloody ridiculous. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it really is. He's batting first against Somerset at Taunton. And what really stands out is the oddness of this scorecard where Hick is batting at first drop. So he comes in after about 70 runs have been added. His first partnership's only worth 32. His second partnership's worth naught. His third partnership is worth seven. Both of those players make ducks. <laughs> then he puts on a partnership of 13 with Ian both. <laughs> who gets out for not many. And then suddenly it's a partnership of 265 with uh, the wicketkeeper, Steve Rhodes, another Rhodes. Maybe you could just put a statue of Steve Rhodes up there. And so that partnership's <laughs> worth 265. And in that partnership, Steve Rhodes crawls along. He makes 56 from 274 balls, just doing absolutely nothing out there, while Graham Hick makes 405 from 469. So even though their team score is 620. Graham Hick makes 64.5% of the runs. He, he hits 11 sixes and 35 <laughs> really fours. He nearly matches a Bannerman contribution of percentage of runs in a score of 628. It is absolutely absurd. So thank you for drawing our attention to that once more. Matthew Share and I assume your friends Matthew Like and Matthew Subscribe. <laughs> That's a ripper. Well done, Jeff. Uh, Peter Dowling, uh, friend of the show, $4.29. Last week with her revised pledge, we thought uh, we thought she was uh, talking about Bill Ponsford's quadruple century, to stick with that theme. He's 429 against Tasmania. But Peter replied, their final word favourite, try moving the decimal point. So I did just that, and I landed on Chris Rogers, another friend of the show. His batting average in test cricket was 42.87, but rounded up quite neatly to 42 of course, he made five centuries in his 20 test matches. 19 of those tests played between ages 36 and 38. He listens to the show. He's now the Victorian coach. So I hope you're having a good time of it, Bucky, and looking forward to watching your team in action next week. <laughs> Thank you, Peter, for 429. Now, Greg Sykes sent through $2.03. Now, we did a bunch of stuff around this with RJ Jadeja and Ravindra Jadeja and Will Porterfield and, and Charlie Hallows. And, and Greg said, because <laughs> uh, we've had a couple of cracks at this number now, and Greg said he's torn between not wanting us to work it out so that we can keep guessing about it or hitting it out of the park this time around. Uh, also, he says, my wife mentioned that you're rather busy with other numbers and so make the clue easier this time. <laughs> And Greg's <laughs> clue involved uh, a, a 1990s player 
who worked in tandem with a postman around that time well. Thank you, Greg, and thank you to your wife for helping make that a little bit narrowed down. The postman, Adam, is Gavin Larson, the New Zealand seamer of the 1990s. So who played a lot of cricket with the postman who is linked to 203? Chris Harris, the, the great doorknob exponent, the, the, the not quite seam bowler who just bowled nude, not spin, that somehow wobbled down and was almost unhittable by basically anyone at the end of an ODI. Uh, Chris Harris took 203 one-day international wickets, 203, and, and took 80 of them in matches alongside Gavin Larson, where they played together a lot during that period. And that, Greg Sykes, is finally the end of that. Out of the park. Yeah, and I, and I mentioned that we're talking to, to Wiggy later on in the show. He wrote a great piece about five years ago about the death of the 50-over Dibley Dobbler, and Gavin Larson and Chris Harris both feature in that piece of writing. I think it was in the Cricket Monthly, if memory serves me correctly. So uh, a nice link back to what we're doing later on. Uh, thank you again for being such a fun correspondent, Greg. Uh, Julian Campbell, to. 57, 2.57, $2.57, 2 pounds, 57 perhaps. <laughs> His clue was look for a real opener. Well, we found a couple last week. We talked about Peter Kirsten making a 2.57 for Derbyshire. We talked about WG Grace uh, making a 2.57 for Gloucestershire, uh, one of his many double hundreds. But Julian said he was grateful for our guesses and he enjoyed what we did, but uh, he thought that it was time to give us a clue which would help us get to the finishing line. He goes on to say, this real opener's greatest highlight as a real opener was in the summer of 2012-13. He adds, this real opener's best innings ended in an uncharacteristic way for a real opener. Bit of a tongue twister saying real opener four times in a sentence, but there we go. Jeff, all yours. An easy one. <laughs> um, well, it was because immediately I thought Ed Cowan, but initially I was hoping that I would find a link to an Ed Cowan innings that I remember that not necessarily a lot of other people have it stick in their memory. The first test in, in India in 2013 when he made 29 and was stumped uh, coming down the wicket. I think he just hit a six over... Long on or long off. Maybe. Ball before, wasn't it? Was it a ball before yeah, he hit a six, before. I reckon? Off Ravi Ashwin, I think. And he, he skipped down and hit a nice, neat drive for six and then tried to do it again and got stumped. And it was the most uncowan sort of innings ever. It was after he'd been told he, by Michael Clark he needed to be more assertive and more aggressive. And then that didn't work out very well. Anyway, he probably had his best series in India, um, actually, and then got dropped because he wasn't Darren Lehman's kind of person because he didn't like drinking tequila out of a flower pot or whatever it is that you were supposed to do at the time. Anyway, it wasn't that innings um, when he was stumped, but it was the innings at the Gabba when Ed Cowan made his first and last test century. He made it off 257 balls, 257 for Julian Campbell, which is a strike rate of just over 50, which is about perfect where you want your real openers to be, not, not scoring any faster than that, certainly. And his dismissal was at the non-striker's end off a deflection from a Michael Clark drive that bounced off Dale Stain and ran him out. <laughs> That's how that Cowan ton, the, act, the real legit Cowan ton, The real Cowan ended. ton. For Julian Campbell, 257. I've often said that, that was one of the best days on cricket Twitter when Cowan uh, posted three figures in, in a test match. It was such a joyous sort of uh, environment that day. You know, Ed had been a correspondent with all of us, really, hadn't he, on that platform? And we felt 
pretty engaged with this story. And the reason I said it was an easy one there, Julian Campbell, wasn't because it was a, an easy clue initially. But I think uh, once we put the pieces together about 12.13, we knew it had to be Eddie. Good to get him on the show. Uh, we move on, uh, Jeff, to $3.64. Chris Unwin, who's been a, a regular nerd pledger, changed his number here. Great correspondent as well. We said Len Hutton, and Chris was... Frustrated He's by that, it. he said. <laughs> he said, "Lads, I can't believe you've fallen for such an obvious decoy." The three six four, the least faint of faints. My last number was Glen Chapel's figures in an At West Trophy final. So think Lancashire players with brief international careers. Absolutely roasted by Chris Unwin. How dare we go for an obvious number? Okay, well, let's think about that. Lanks players with brief international careers. That makes us think Neil Fairbrother. And Neil Fairbrother famously did not make 364, never had an innings of 364, did have an innings of 366, which is nearly there, but not quite. However, he did set a record in partnership for Lancashire, their partnership for the third wicket of 364. He did that alongside someone with a much longer England career in Michael Atherton. And that partnership record of 364 stood until a few years ago in 2015 when a couple of Lancastrian South Africans, Elvira Peterson and Ashwell Prince, made 501 in partnership five years back. So 364, is that, Chris Unwin, the record that Neil Fairbrother made with Michael Atherton for Lanks? of 364. Let us know. Yeah, it's interesting because Neil Fairbrother was, I mean, he's a hero at, at Lancashire. He played 10 test matches and ended up having quite a long one-day career, 12 years in and out of the one-day side, played in that World Cup final in 1992. These days, he's the manager for a whole host of England players, so he's still very relevant to the modern game. Other players I was looking at were Ian Austin, who, of course, uh, opened the bowling in the 99 World Cup. Simon Kerrigan, who played that one test match against Australia at the Oval in 2013 and, Milo. and John Crawley. But I think, yeah, Milo Kerrigan. Uh, but I, I thought that um, that number and the way you stitch it together was far better, Jeff. So let's go with that. 364, Chris Unwin, Neil Fairbrother. And our final revisit uh, for today is an absolute belter. The $3.23, Tim Gilkerson. Now, we talked about Andre Russell's strike rate in a World Cup game in 2015. We talked about the fourth innings of the 1937 uh, Melbourne Ashes Test match, but we weren't near the mark there, Jeff. I'm going to hand over to you because you've done a power of work here. Yeah, so Tim Tim got very abstract in his hints for this particular one. So he said, look, here's a hint that should get you over the line. And, and I hope when you discover the answer, you'll not be disappointed and that I haven't broken any Nerdian rules that I wasn't aware of. Tim, calm down, relax. We're all friends here. Come on in. Come and sit by the campfire. There, there is no question or answer too ridiculous for the final word. Tim says the number relates to when the fragrant harbour was in a creek with a barramundi. Hmm. And at this point, I'm like, mm. I hate cryptic crosswords. Like... 
hate them. I don't like. I I don't even like people who like them. I have friends who like them, and it makes me reconsider the friendship. It's like, why? Like it's so arbitrary and and abstract how the rules are. Well, when this says this at the start of a line, then it means you have to look for the fifth letter in the ninth word in the sentence, and like just piss off. Anyway, this is not that because this is this is a a little more direct once you work out what's going on. So, the fragrant harbour is the name of a novel written about Hong Kong, from which I derived that it's probably also a, a nickname of some sort of old style, probably Cecil Rhodes kind of era, where they'd say, ah, yes, let us set sail for the fragrant harbour where we will sell them lots of opium and if they don't like it, we'll <laughs> blow them up and then we'll sell them the opium. Um, so the fragrant harbour, I thought, okay, that's Hong Kong. The Barramundi... That's the nickname for the Papua New Guinean cricket team. I know that much. And the Fragrant Harbour and the Barramundi coming together, the highest ever score for Hong Kong in professional cricket was made against Papua New Guinea. And that score was 323 in a one-dayer in 2017. That's just brilliant by both of you, really, uh, (laughs) that uh, Tim had the presence of mind to throw that clue up and you were able to decode it uh, so well. So thank you, Tim. We better be right. And if we're not right, don't tell us. <laughs> if, t- if Jeff's got that wrong, lie to us. It'll be easier. Lie to me way. softly, Tim. Uh, lie to me sweetly. That's, <laughs> tell me that's you still the end love of our me. revisits. As always, we like to finish off by um, answering uh, where well, we have got it right, just to kind of close the loop on a few bits and pieces through the Patreon page. Uh, Jeremy Nash said that we finally got it right when talking about Malcolm Nash. Uh, his figures before Sobers hit his six sixes. He said that Jeff was bang on the money. As his initial clue said, it was a figure immediately before something monumental happened. Now off to think about a new number. Looking forward to it. We've got a note from George Norman about his $6.77. He said we were correct by finally working out that that related to Norman Cowan's taking six for 77 at the MCG in 1982. George wrote, in addition for being remembered for its finish, which was missed by Channel 9 due to an overrunning spanner advert. <laughs> this is also statistically significant in that it had the smallest difference of runs scored in the four completed innings in any test match. The lowest score was 284 and the highest was 294. There is also a classic YouTube video taken by the local news service of the Cowans family after the test. And we have had a look at this and it is in part extremely funny because they've obviously been wrangled to go out and play backyard cricket in a fairly uninterested sort of fashion. But it's also fairly dubious in that Basically, the tone of the the news report is, oh, this family must have been up just getting absolutely smashed after watching their kid play in the MCG test and uh, and take wickets. And and I'm just not sure that a a white English family would have been treated the same way. Yes, I did. uh, I did sort of uh, raise an eyebrow at that. There's also an interesting bit when they get him on the phone, so I'm not sure. It sounds like the the line's pretty terrible, but at last, uh, Norman... He gets to talk to his parents having taken this match-winning six for 77 and they can't hear a bloody word they're saying to each other, which is a reminder of how fortunate we are to be having a conversation like the one we are right now, Jeff. Indeed. And our last message came in from Ilya Andrews, whose number featured earlier. Double Ilya, when too much Ilya is never enough on the final word. He said, I randomly came across your podcast about two years ago 
uh, when Australia was playing in the UAE, I recognised David Squires as the designer of your caricatures. And as I love his genius, I decided to give your podcast a shot. Two years and many hours of listening pleasure later, your wit and humour, love of the game in its entirety and the avoidance of parochialism has meant that I now re-love the game of cricket in the same way that Dino made me love the Australian men's team 30-odd years ago. Well, thank you, Ilya. That is a bloody heartwarming message to receive and in our gratitude to you for for being a a long-term nerd pledger and supporter and correspondent you are the seabus super performer of the week that's it it's you you're you will be plated in gold and stood on a plinth uh, perhaps in place of a statue of cecil rhodes at some time in the future i couldn't agree more jeff a fitting winner thank you Ilya, for being a wonderful part of what we're doing here on nerd pledge story time and the final word that's the end of story time today jeff let's take a brief break and return with a conversation with Tim Wigmore. Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to The Final Word. It's The Final Word story time, and we have back with us on the show uh, Tim Wigmore, journalist for the Daily Telegraph over here in the UK, acclaimed author, award-winning author. Indeed, uh, when we spoke to you this time last year, Wiggy, um, you just released a book about the history of T20 cricket, which went on to win a whole slew of awards, you and Freddie Wilde. Cheers, yeah, that seems like a... A different world and indeed it was as far as uh the i guess the, the foundation stone of uh, i notice this with authors sometimes when, when you're writing one book you're already th- thinking about the next one and, and you've gone on to turn this around inside 12 months with with another co-author a mark williams we're going to a mark williams in a moment here but this particular book is the origin story to an extent found in your t20 book uh no actually so i we first started thinking about doing this book in 2018 so actually we had kind of had two projects on the go but it was a case of trying to get them off the ground with with, with publishers and so on and it I guess as it these things kind of often work out you end up kind of going from no deals to, to two deals um, in, a, in an unrelated way but it was just kind of a bit of luck and it meant that um, I had to <laughs> had to spend quite, quite a lot of time after doing the 220 book getting stuck into this but we already actually done done a reasonable amount and had the idea crystallise and stuff um, and it's one of those as, as you know when you have a, a deadline sometimes that's the, the best thing to, to spur you forward and actually mm. I guess uh, the first first lockdown was, was good was good for something you know there was, there was plenty to uh, <laughs> plenty of time to fill in those evenings yeah I'm sure there'll be a lot of books that are coming out early next year out of <laughs> lockdown it's called The Best and I mentioned that you've written it with a co-author A. Mark Williams tell us a little bit about the man you wrote this book with and how you came together so he's a yeah um, a leading sports scientist, and he he kind of basically wanted to do a book that was a kind of a popular science book that was distilling his, his sort of lifetime of, of research. He's worked for you know uh, teams around the world, from Liverpool to the NBA, and advised various sports governing bodies and so on. Um, so yeah, we, we came to contact, and then we sort of we tried to write the project. Uh, effectively, he he would write kind of very very you know detailed science notes for each chapter and my my role was was really to sort of distill that and partly through doing uh, lots of interviews and we did, did lots of lots of great interviews uh, for the book um in, in cricket terms you talk to people like mike Hussey, kumar sangakara and beyond cricket guys like uh, marcus rashford Del don steph curry uh C.A. Khaleesi's uh, Dan, Dan Carter as well um, mm. so a host of, of, of really leading athletes and it was really interesting to, to talk to them in a way that was trying to in some ways trying to marry up their 
experience with, with, with the research and trying to trying to see how it all fits together. And, and obviously every athlete's, you know, kind size enough, every athlete's journey is, is a one-off. But uh, as I think the point of the book, one point of the book was to try and see what are the, the, the common threads in many of their stories and what are, you know, I would say to become an elite athlete, you need to, to win the sporting lottery, but there are some factors that give you a lot more lottery tickets. And our book is partly an exploration of what are those those things that give you more lottery tickets. Yeah, so essentially answering the, the fundamental question, like why do some uh, sports people go on to be champions? And you've broken it up into a, a few sections, one which we'll dig into in a moment about um, serendipity, really, chance, uh, or, or, or the extent to which chance uh, informs this equation. Then there's a section about the mind of champions and one about the training methods as well. But we might just focus initially, at least, on uh, that first section. So about nature, I suppose. And you really can't uh, get more to the core of that than, than family, uh, which is where you start the, the project. And there are a whole series of threads through this that I suppose... It appears like common sense, but the way you're able to add uh, meat to the bones really does uh, spell that out in, in far greater detail. So, for example, in very crude terms, if you are a younger sibling, chances are you're more likely to be a professional sports person. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a really big effect, actually, and it, it goes across across all sports, really. So a, really, a big study in Australia and Canada you know, found elite athletes have just over one older sibling on average each, whereas a kind of control group of non-elite athletes have at only 0.6, so almost double. And um, in England, the ECB have actually, they, they did a project recently which was trying to explain England had a big problem with finding, finding test batsmen, and they kind of tried to look at the discriminating factors between uh, batsmen who became, you know, uh, good test batsmen for England and kind of n- near elites, as they call them, who were kind of good county players who never made the step up. And they found one of the big, big predictive factors was the number of siblings, um, which is kind of amazing. So, yeah, they found that elite England batsmen had 1.2 siblings. These county batsmen only had, had 0.4 on average. Oh, this is this is for older siblings. And this seems again and again in different sports, in Major League Baseball, and also it's 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 especially big in in women's sport. Often, so the 2017 England team that won the World Cup that amazing day at Lords, so 14 of their 15 15 women squad had had older brothers, not just older siblings, but older brothers. So that 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 suggests even more important in, in women's sport. And I think I think part of the reason for that was well, so a few reasons. So the older sibling effect essentially is you you you're playing up, with, and by that you're you're playing with with someone who is is probably going to be you know if they're two years old, probably, the odds are they will be fit, they will be fitter, they will be stronger than you. So you have to find a way to keep up, and you're not going to be able in cricket terms. You probably can't out out muscle them. So what you've got to do, you've got to find skills and way ways of of keeping up, and and eventually, and if you can do that for long enough, you will find you'll get to a point where suddenly they're not bigger than you, they're not stronger than you, but because you've been, <laughs> you've been smaller the whole time, you've developed extra skills in them. So suddenly when the playing field is level, it, it's actually to your, to your advantage. Um, so really, uh, I find it kind of amazing uh, how, how strong that this factor is. Um, and it works in so many different ways. A, a big one is parents are more relaxed. You, you might find this yourself. Um, parents are, are more relaxed with, with, with younger kids when they have older siblings so you know they're allowed to do things a little bit younger and also obviously they're sort of half looked after by their older siblings so they get to actually do more informal play at a younger age and formal play is you found a really big 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 
big factor in who goes on. So, you know, there's been various studies where kind of looking at football, you, you, they were looking at players released from academies and players who stayed on and they found they'd done the same amount of formal training, but the difference was all outside the academies that the, the players who were offered contracts had actually done a lot more in, in formal play. Um, and that links to the siblings, siblings idea as well. Yeah, and even, I mean, I suppose we all have anecdotal examples of this from the backyard growing up, but I think I, what I like about this book is that it ties together a lot of threads from other books uh, that have looked at this in the past. So Steve Kinane wrote a fantastic um, interview-based book called uh, First Tests, like, would have been about 10 years ago now about uh, the backyards of Australian cricketers and what they looked like and and invariably it was a sibling rivalry uh, which um, led towards one or both or many of, of the brothers or indeed sisters in some cases if the examples he raised going on to the top level and yeah I even think about my own backyard my brother was able to play footy and cricket at a younger age than I was in a formal sense and he was always trying to be better than me and, and naturally enough he, he overtook me by the time we were probably 14 or, or 15 years old and I think that all kind of marries up in this study. Interesting that you have a, a big uh, example of the, the Murray brothers, the, the, the tennis playing Murray brothers, and not only uh, their rivalry, but the way they were coached, the involvement of their mum, who was able to, I suppose, uh, distinguish between her job as a tennis coach and what she was doing as a parent. Yeah, we talked with, with Judy Murray. She was f- fantastic. And I think there's an image of her, which is not really fair as a kind of tiger mum who tries to do everything for her kids and that's not really right and when we talked to her we talked with Jamie as well her coaching style was about asking questions for them and getting to take ownership so rather than saying you know you lost today because your 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 second serve was terrible she'd sort of frame it as a question you know what what could you have done differently on your on your second serve and try and make you think differently about your game and I think that that's another big big thing that we, we talk about is how you know, the idea of helicopter parenting, which are, you know, parents that basically try and do everything for their kids and also try and remove all their all their problems and they're kind of they're told exactly what to do. Well, well, you can't script it. Your life is not a script and sport certainly is not a script. You get unforeseen problems at you all the time and it's having that ability to to adapt, which is is so, so important. And, and that was what she was able to do really well with her, with her kids. And, and that actually is what you get a little bit more broadly from informal play because you, you actually when you're when you're playing on a wicket that's, that's, not, that's not as good, you're... You, you play a you know a silly form of cricket where you're not allowed to hit on the leg side or whatever. Well, that forces you to do it. It exposes you to to a new challenge, which actually can then potentially make things a little bit easier during an actual match. Yeah, that, that, that's right, isn't it? So, I found that passage about parenting. Uh, quite interesting because you often hear about say the Tiger Woods example where his dad was a very interventionalist parent had him with a golf club in his hand by age 18 months or however that story goes but it's very much hands on but the work you've done here it points to it being more effective on the whole like looking at the data that parents who aren't as interventionalist and aren't able to sort of distinguish between being a parent first and foremost as opposed to being um, as opposed to I suppose setting up all of the variables in their life around being good at sport and, and having a better balance, which creates better outcomes overall. Yeah, absolutely. And we found this with um, kind of the psychology of athletes as well. So there's been various kind of studies comparing elite athletes with, with almost, and they found that the almost are far more consu- like far more obsessed with how their children would, would do in sport. And they were trying, you know, they were having a go at the coach for, you know, substituting them and, and, you know, 
really, you know, trying to tell the, the kids what, what, what they should do, you know, and also making sport the absolute centerpiece of, of their lives. Whereas actually it seems like the kids that went on to be elite, their parents were a little bit more, more relaxed. They, they obviously were interested often, but there was a bit more of a, of a balance there. And I think that all that also links to, to burnout, which is that if you're increasingly it's like coaches seem to want want kids to be professional athletes in terms of like their, their lifestyle and their training from the age of 10, 12. And that's nuts because you'll get to 18 and you'll just burn out. You, you cannot you cannot do that. And, and it becomes it's just so joyless. And so it, it's one of the real arts, I think, is managed managing to to keep that sense of like sport being fun and also sport being in a, a way that you express yourself and you dare to, you dare to try things because if, if you're very very kind of rigid you're afraid of making mistakes or that will put a ceiling onto what you, you can achieve really in any sport I think and so having having that those parents who kind of enablers more than uber 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 pushy is it, really really important and it, it's i'm sure for a lot of people it's, it's easier 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 said than, than done um because there's, there's so much going on but that can be really really important the second section of the book's about or second chapter i should say is about location which again you sort of think about it and you reflect on these hot spots a few years ago i wrote a, a piece for the night watchman with will mcpherson about barbados and the over-representation of test cricketers from that island i think from memory 86 cricketers out of a population of 400,000, yeah, something, something like that. Capita, probably the, the best in the world. No, it is, by, by, by a yeah. mile. And we looked at a few other hotspots, just purely that division of um, population into how many test cricketers they've produced. But Wagga Wagga always comes up, uh, the great Australian hotspot. And that's where you start your second chapter because Wagga Wagga as you describe, hits a sweet spot in as far as it's the perfect location in relation to big cities and it's got the perfect size population. So if you can just kind of elaborate on that, why would a place like Wagga Wagga in an Australian context be the right size and in the right place to produce champions? So Wagga Wagga, essentially, it's, it's an example of what they call the, the mid-sized town effect and essentially that is somewhere that's a sweet spot of the best of ur- in sporting and kind of childhood terms really the best of urban living which is very good very good good facilities kind of a good good infrastructure good quality of competition good coaching those sorts of things and the best of rural living which is basically lots of space a kind of ease of playing you don't need to kind of travel for miles and hours to get between grounds and often a kind of community spirit which means actually the parents are more happy to let the kids, you know, play outside because they they know the the neighbour or whatever, and so you have you get more of that informal play and just more more hours playing. And, and Wagga is basically it has a, the best of, of both of those, and and that means you get so you get kids playing a, a lot of sport. It's easy it's easy to play. You also, so kids don't get discouraged. You know, we find we find that in bigger cities, kids are more likely to do to stop playing a sport. Um, basically, so so that the dropout rates are much higher in cities because I think basically kids get a bit a bit lost, and with so many kids as well, that the, the coaches often focus on the, the creme de la creme, and and everyone else can kind of get get a bit lost. So you, you don't have that in these mid-sized cities, uh, mid-sized towns like like Wagga, and often a big community spirit. So sport often being at the sort of central of the, the, the community, and it's it's just it's very easy to play. That there's there's not a lot of barriers. You, even you know you think of being in the middle of, of London and, so, and it can be just difficult just difficult to 
to travel, you have to you know get buses and, and stuff. It's difficult to find the space. You have to book the ground. It's just it's just difficult. And these these puts this puts up all these these barriers. Um, and another another actually advantage is because of the sort of the nature of these mid-sized towns like Wilgate, it encourages kids when they're sort of 13, 14, if they're pretty good. We talked with Jeff Lawson about this, he said it was really important. They all just go and play with adults. And that's such an important way of kind of accelerating your skill development and your psychological strength. You know, if you're, how talented you are as a 13, 14 year old, if you're playing in, in adult cricket, that will push you in a, in a whole different way, different challenges, it will really make you you develop your kind of competitiveness, your tenacity, and and that it's it's a very different challenge to maybe playing under fourteens cricket and kind of bossing it. Um, and in some so in some ways that actually replicates the sort of sibling effect we talked earlier, which is that if you're forced to play up with with people who you cannot compete with on a straight physical in a straight physical fight, then that will force you to develop other skills to to, to keep up. And I suppose with Wagga, uh, where it's situated around those big cities, but there's that fantastic book from earlier this year, Range by David Epstein, which I, I'm assuming you probably came across in your research, Wiggy, which refers to Roger Federer having played loads of sports and Wagga Wagga being on the Barassi line. So for those who aren't from Australia, that's the connecting line between rugby league town and Aussie rules town, for want of a better descriptor, which means that even more sports are available to kids from that part of Australia. But you can extrapolate it to US sports as well. I mean, um, you, you have here mid-range towns or uh, are producing way more professional athletes in the major leagues, uh, whether that be baseball, football, hockey, and so on, compared to those from the big cities. Yeah, I mean, this was a kind of one of those kind of insane findings we, we found and you you know lots of these things you think it'll be you know a few percent here or there but what we found is that uh in the u.s if you're born in it if you grow up in a town between 50 and 100 thousand people so a classic um, mid-sized town you have 15 times more chance of becoming a professional athlete so that is if we go back to the lottery tickets and you have 15 lottery tickets instead of one that's a, that's a massive massive difference and it, it speaks to all these effects. It's, it's been seen in, in Britain as, as well that, you know, the, these smaller towns, they tend to produce more more players. And actually, you, you look at English cricket today, you see more players kind of the national team, men's and women's really, from, from Devon than you do from inner city London, which in terms of population, that's, that's staggering. And that speaks to these benefits. It also speaks to something we might talk about later in terms of the advantage of private schools. Yeah, I, I was going to link to that. So Millfield School... Uh, which is the case study you use. 44 full-time coaches across 27 sports. Wild privilege. Privilege that you could never conceive of if you're from the general population, really, unless you have the capacity to pay to go to a school like that. 31% of British Olympians uh, across three Olympiads that you study went to private school, which reflects the medals or won, and so on. Uh, and as you link in, in your book, often the ability to access these schools does relate to being a little bit outside of those um, urban metropolis. Pluses. Yeah, and this advantage is actually it's even more in, in cricket. Um, so there was a great recent piece from James Wallace in, in Wisdom Cricket Monthly it said that 45% of men's county cricket players went to private schools in, in Britain. We know that you know, the second test with Pakistan had nine players 
from from private schools and and so this it's really a three-pronged advantage it's obviously the facilities are ridiculous you know so in Milford they have these special indoor nets which basically replicate conditions from australia and and india as, as well as england so the idea is you know when you're a 13 year old you, you can be getting a kind of rounded education you that the coach is or the director of cricket is mark garroway the former assistant coach of england you obviously have by having so many good athletes there you have this competition which is if you're if you're a great real talent but you know none of you none of your mates are any good how are you going to be pushed to improve if you have this competition as well that's going to drive you on the facilities mean you can basically play almost all year round which is obviously in, in england is, is so important given the the weather and and i think that the, the third factor which is kind of the most uncomfortable and probably damning of of english cricket is simply that if you're equally good at Millfield and in an area which does not produce, has not got a track record of producing cricketers. Well, if you're at Millfield, you've almost no chance of being lost to the system because all the, the counties, Somerset especially, but not only them, they, they know that so many great players come from Millfield. So they, they, they're going to, you know, you get kind of academy coaches at, at games all the time because why would, you know, they know there's a track record of, of playing there. I think the last England under team World Cup had three players from, from Millfield, you know, which is nuts. And so you've actually got less chance of being lost there. And, and it shows, even though you get all these advantages anywhere, you get this extra advantage, which is that kind of becomes self-perpetuating and that stouts who are maybe, you know, lack of time or lazy or whatever, it's just easier. You know, you, you pick up, you go to Milford and you pick up the, the best player in the first team and they're, they're basically going to be a safe bet to be at least a good county cricketer. And back to, I suppose, size, the big fish little pond effect, which you referred to a little bit in, in passing. But the way I sort of see it is that if you're living in a smaller town, the, the chance of your head being turned by a number of other distractions surely is a, an element of this. If you're living in a, in a bigger city where there are so many different options compared to being a big fish uh, as a sports person uh, in a smaller town, I mean, why wouldn't you continue to play to that strength? There's, I suppose, less chance of having your head turned. Yeah, no, I think you're right. There's just there's just fewer distractions in the, these mid-sized areas. But I also think that the parenting angle is really important, which is parents are just more relaxed about their kids playing outside. There's, there's less of preoccupation, you know, less worried, sometimes justified, maybe sometimes not, in terms of their kids' safety, you know, when they're 10, 11, play, playing outside. And so in these towns like in Wagga and so on, when, when there's a bit more you know, community, you know, sense of community perhaps, so parents are less worried. So kids actually, what happens is they get to play more sport rather than being, being cooped inside playing Xbox or whatever. And last on this particular uh, part of the book, uh, you look at Norway as a, 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 a nation, how it is overrepresented with Olympic medals at Winter Olympics uh, level uh, compared to far bigger countries and you sort of link that through to their want to be outside and their want to ski and, and it's kind of got this cultural effect and it doesn't matter that their population is like five million or whatever it is yeah no, absolutely and it's it's you know we we, we talked to the uh, head coach of the Norway team and he says it's great if you want if you become a winter star you're sort of the king and basically you know, the kind of cultural significance of cross-country skiing of Battle on that is, is so great. It's it's revered so 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 much that it's sort of you're on a pedestal as much as play, playing football or, or whatever, um, and that and that creates this sort of it's it's perpetu- it's self perpetuating basically because you have it's a bit like Barbados and cricket where it becomes the, the thing. So it, it inspires future kids to do it, and it's you have this great history, and and I think there's a certain amount of pride in maintaining that 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 legacy, and and obviously. 
it's just it's so embedded and so embedded in in life this the, the kind of culture of skiing in, in this case and and that that kind of cultural importance of a sport is, is massive as well because it, it means if it's the normal thing to do to to play a certain sport that just it takes away so many barriers you don't have the kind of you talked about earlier the, the distractions the kind of why you do it you know a, a kid to their mate you're trying to justify spending all these hours on on a certain sport well if, if it's just what everyone does it's you take away all that that barrier so you're gonna have people who are just gonna that they will be more like to stay engaged engage engaged for longer and of course you also have that the, the competition element is is massive which we, we talked about earlier in terms of yeah, athletes who get the right level of internal competition, it, it generally it's much more conducive to, to them improving. And the reason is, obviously, if you're fighting to stay in, in the team, well, that's going to push you on. If you know you're going to be in the team team forever, then you don't have to maybe... It's not going to push you that extra extra, extra little bit. So we talked with um, Ragnar, Ragnar Hager, who won, a gold, who won gold medals, uh, various gold medals in the Winter Olympics of 2018. And she basically says if she was from a country that didn't she was really worried about getting onto the team first of all and she basically said if, if she wasn't from Norway and she knew she was going to be in the reach the Olympics whatever she doesn't think she'd have trained quite as hard she wouldn't have ended up being as good she wouldn't have won those gold medals so it, it's kind of the, the culture of of towns or countries in Norway's Norway skiing's case that produce a lot of players that can be self-perpetuating because there's just a the levels of competition it, it, it creates in, internally um, and so you, you get so the, the idea is yeah, basically as a as an athlete you if you're in it's it's easier to come from an area that produces a lot of of great athletes in that sport but even if you reach a certain age and you're equally good compared with someone else from an area that doesn't produce so many athletes in that sport it's, it's better to be in the one which produces a lot because that's that's where the competition is and that will that'll spur you on uh, the relative age effect i think uh, most people now would probably be relatively familiar with this malcolm gladwell's of course written extensively on this topic it, it gets a huge run whenever you look at the way that sports teams are comprised so the basic principle being that if you're born at different points of the year you're more likely to be a professional sports person indeed you're more likely to go to oxford or cambridge and any other metric and that's due to the fact that there's a compound interest effect if you're born earlier in the year uh, or earlier in the school year that means that you are just like 11 months bigger 11 months older than some of those who are at the which other could end be, of the which spectrum. is 10% when you're 10 exactly or, or 20% when you're 5 when when some of the talent yeah. ID starts with some of these sports in, in, in the states so the, the knock on effect is that you know twice as many professional uh, footballers are born in September compared to July but where I found this interesting was taking it a little bit further you weren't just looking at that raw um, you know how many hockey players are born in January February thing that we often see in, well, we have seen rather in Gladwell's work you were saying where this has been challenged a little bit and turned on its head to make sure that it's not as inefficient, that making sure that equally talented kids who are born at the wrong time of the year are identified and are given opportunities and aren't forgotten about. Yeah, so one of the, the things that we, I learned from doing this book, as you said, the relative age effect I kind of knew about, but the underdog effect, which is almost the inverse of that, which is... Takes a little bit of explaining. Basically, if you're young for your year, it's much harder to become professional. It's at every turn, under 15s, earlier, later. There's going to be fewer kids born in June or July than in, in so, so, so September. But when you actually get, do you look at the kind of super elite? Often you find that those young kids who've had it harder the whole way through. They've been clinging on because they're playing with kids who are physically stronger than them. Suddenly they, they get to the top, and those those younger kids 
there's fewer of them at professional level, but they've actually got more chance of becoming super elite, super super elite as it's known. So, for example of of test in test cricketers with over fifty caps, two is sixty four percent of them are actually born in the last six months of the year, which is the opposite of the relative age effect. And that's even though there's more county players born at the start of the year. So it's effectively it's saying they've had it harder all all along. And when you get to so at every level, the system is trying to get get, get rid of them, basically. But those few who, who can cling on, they've got by clinging on, they will have developed those kind of other skills, a bit like with younger siblings. And then suddenly, when they don't have those disadvantages, they can really thrive. So even across sports, more MVPs, slightly more MVPs are actually born in the last three and six months of of the selection year than than at the start, which is contrary to the general rule. So it's quite a... Quite, quite counterintuitive, really. Yeah, and, and I and I thought that was great. As you say, there is that link back to the younger sibling effect that we discussed earlier, and that's where different, uh, I guess, cutting edge sporting organisations, the All Blacks, Norway, we've already mentioned, they've been attuned to this. So the All Blacks don't, um, or in, in in rugby in New Zealand, as you've explained in the book, they don't worry about how old you are when putting teams together. They worry about how much you weigh. They they acknowledge that as a better determinant of where you should be playing at the time, and they do their talent ID accordingly. Uh, with Norway, they weight their selection based on quotas of different points of the year. So in the end, uh, what you find is that, yes, it might be easier to be elite or to make the grade, sorry, as an elite sports person initially if you're born at the right time of year. But unless you keep challenging that cohort of people who've had this systematic advantage in, again, to use Gladwell speak, reach their 10,000 hours quicker, unless you keep challenging them, they'll be overtaken by the scrappers who've done it the hard way and clung on and somehow found their way to the top and then overtaken them as they get older. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We're seeing it in English football at the moment that has been... A real, there's, there's growing awareness of this. It probably starts with Alex Oxley Chamberlain at Southampton. So he was a, a, a kind of his skills were so obvious, but he was a tiny, tiny kid. So they, rather than saying you're not good enough, they moved him down. And then three years later, he was playing for Southampton first team, age 16, and then moving to Arsenal and, and Liverpool and had, had a fantastic career. And and basically, he could have been probably a generation and he would have been lost to, to the English game. And then they they kind of used that, and that was kind of done by luck almost they moved him down they kind of observed and they moved it down and then they were kind of moved him down and then they were trying to think can we ex- can we apply these principles more scientifically which is the idea of, of biobanding which is it's basically you you try and you try and challenge people in different ways so you you know for example you, you can have you, you can group people by age rather than by school year which means you know the under 11s will have 10 year olds so you go from being the youngest under 11 all the way up to the oldest and then you, you flip and you're the youngest under 11 again and what that means is that you you have experience both as, as a little kid and the bigger kid you're also playing with more different teammates and opponents which is which is good for you as well and it it kind of exposes more more kids to those challenges because if you're if you're a 13 year old kid and you're just you'll hit the ball really really far you'll be able to you know to, to beat up basically your opponents for, for fun on the on the pitch, but what's but actually is that really challenging you when when suddenly you're playing on bigger boundaries and you're you're not the biggest kid? You probably won't won't have, de- have, have developed you know enough. So I think smart you know smart sports organisations now they're trying to blur those lines and make them less rigid. They were historically really far too rigid. Those those age barriers. Um, you know, you mean it means that like a kid born in August is, is the youngest all the way through every game, every single game they're playing, which is just kind of nuts. And it also means, as you said, the inverse of that is that if you're the old kid and you're physically advanced as well. So it's, it's two things. It's 
it's when when your birthday is and it's also are you physically mature even for your date of birth so you can get kids who are born in September and they're physically mature and then you can get them playing with kids born August who are immature who are born young and physically mature and the, and the actual gap in kind of physical in physical age development can be three or four years between those those two kids so they shouldn't be on the same pitch really Tim, as we start to widen out, we'll come straight back to cricket. This is in the second section about the mind, chapter 11, but I thought it was uh, worth uh, pulling out and uh, discussing with you because it's far more to do with cricket, strictly speaking. Left-handers. Uh, so you open your chapter there about Mike Hussey seeing Alan Border in the famous Boxing Day test of 1982 and saying, I want to bat like him. And despite the fact that he was shaping up as a right-hander, dominant right hand, he turned around, batted left-handed, dominant hand at the top of the blade, and that... Uh, as you've well, as you've you've pulled out in your in your study, is a major factor. Players who can turn around the other way and use their dominant right hand and bat left-handed in the traditional way that we set up, that skews uh, big time in terms of professional cricket. Yeah, it's a massive, massive advantage. So the research on this says you're seven to- like comparing professional cricketers with amateur players. Pros are seven times more likely to be, be, be top hand dominant, which means, as you said, if you're a righty, you, you bat left handed and vice versa as mm. well. So seven times more, more, more chance of becoming a pro- professional. It's it's a massive, massive thing. And it's it should I mean, it's kind of thing as a kid. You ever, I remember people talking about it and it was kind of a thing, but it but it's not like a, it was a thing that you kind of you feel like you should have done. But I don't know. My experience was most people didn't actually do that. Whereas it should actually be the norm that you, unless there's a really, really good, good reason not to, everyone bats, bats top hand, hand dominant because you get, it's basically you, you get a big advantage in terms of control of the bat. The research suggests it's much easier to control the bat being top hand dominant. And clearly when also, when, when most people aren't doing it as well, it means if you switch from right right, right to left, it means as a, as a kid, you'll get a lot, lot of balls on your, on your pads to feast off basically. Yeah, and it also, I mean, it extends to left-arm bowlers. I mean, 25% of test wickets being taken by left-armers despite, in the last five years, that is, despite the fact that only 10% of the population are dominant left-arm. I mean, you can't make yourself a left-arm bowler. Well, I suppose you can, given what we've seen in, in cricket. Always, right? no, there, no, there are, there no, are some no, bowlers trying yeah. to do it. But, but broadly speaking, it is very, I mean, turning yourself into a left-handed batsman is far easier than turning yourself into a left-arm bowler. No, I think I think it's almost impossible to turn yourself into a left a left arm uh, a left arm bowler. Like, you need to be doing it from such a, a young age, and yeah. So I think practically it's almost impossible. So what that, given that about ten percent of people are left-handed, what it basically is telling us to, to be a left arm bowler because you benefit from bats for not being familiar with, with facing you. We see this probably most extremely if you're a a wrist spinner, a left arm wrist spinner. You those are so rare that actually you need to the kind of quality you need to be to be international standard is actually a, a lot less comparatively because bats are just so unfamiliar with, with, with facing you. So yeah, that, that shows the advantage kind of, yeah, of element of, well, not surprise, but the unfamiliarity basically um, because kids, everyone would have spent their whole life training for, for right on bowls overwhelmingly and bowling to right, to right-handed bats, batsmen as well. And you see this across sports, don't you, as well? We, with tennis, you, you have the example of boxing with southpaws, but also perhaps more relevant to our conversation is if you're a left-handed tennis player, um, due to how rare they, they come along, uh, that has a structural advantage as well. Yeah, because in tennis at 34, so at break point down, basically, your strongest serve will be out wide to the, the, the backhand. So it's, it's the double tick on, on both. 
both of those. But actually, yeah, we, we see the advantage is almost the same in, in baseball, which is interesting, which is that yeah, you have six times more chance of becoming a, a pro in baseball if you throw right-handed and bat left-handed. A sinister a sinister right-hander, as they call them, Tim, that dis- dis- dismissive term. Sinister of- hitters, yeah, yeah. It's a, a nice little Americanism there. But it's very, very similar, actually, uh, in, in baseball and cricket. And it's, again, one of those things that, yeah, it, if you're kind of a sports governing body, if you're, you know, cricket board, you should be making all your kids try and do that unless there's a really compelling reason not to. And it's one of those little things you actually might get. There's quite a few things, actually, think of the book that we, we thought actually that could make a big, big difference to a talent pool. Um, you know, left hand thing would be the most obvious one, but also ways of encouraging kids to, to play up. And actually, maybe you can... You can find your, your best kids at 11, 12, 13 and actually kind of really try and push them, play, get them to play with under 14s, under 16s and you know, make them kind of struggle and, and kind of earn that. And that will really be good for their development. So in closing then, uh, I have an eight-month-old daughter, Winnie, as you know. What do I do uh, to make sure that she ends up playing professional sport? Not that I necessarily care, but if I was trying to build a, an athlete, um, well, first of all, I probably wouldn't have that mindset, what you're saying about parenting. I'd have to step away from that objective. I'd need to be a hands-off parent. I would need to, but in doing so, would, would encourage her to be uh, a left-handed batter, if possible, if she's right-handed. But if she's got a dominant left hand, to face up right-handed or would the advantage of being left-handed still prevail and you'd, you'd let her uh, be a bottom-hand dominant lefty? No, it's still actually, if you're left-handed, it's still an advantage to bat right-handed because which suggests the kind of control of the bat is a more important thing. But if you're right to left, you get this double advantage, which is you, you get better control and you get you, you face a, a worse quality of deliveries, basically. Okay. So top-hand dominant. I've got to be, be hands-off, top-hand. Where, where should we move to in the UK if we're going to stay here? You should probably move to... Hotspots at the moment for cricket, some you know, the kind of small towns in Surrey or you know, or, or Devon, maybe Exeter or somewhere where you get that kind of the wagger effect. Okay, okay. I mean, obviously, you need to start a breeding cr- program, ha- have, a, have a few, have a few <laughs> kids, and then they'll get progressively better. So, poor old Winnie will be fodder, she, she will merely be a mask for child number two. She is a guinea pig, you have to right. have to be open with her <laughs> if, if, if she's happy to be a, a guinea pig. Yeah, yeah, your family becomes very, very rich in time. Well, yeah, but um, based on her personality so far, I don't think she's uh, going to be told what to do. She'll do what she wants to do, which is perfectly fine with me. Uh, Tim Wigmore, the book's called The Best, co-written with A. Mark Williams. It's available in all the usual places, I'm sure. Uh, yep. And it's received some lov- lovely reviews in the newspapers over the last couple of weeks. Tim, thanks for coming back and joining us again on The Final Word. And good luck with the book. Cheers, Colin. Hi, I'm Natalie Jamanis, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It's the final word, story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon as we say goodbye for another week. Thank you to Tim Wigmore for appearing on the show. And Tim is he's one of those kind of characters who's got this intense focus and ability to get things done. It seems like very recently that we were talking to him about his previous book and here he is with his next one and it doesn't seem to come with any of the sort of pain and sweat and blood that that it cost me to get a couple of books out in a couple of years he's just like must write next book he's probably the next one will be out in a month or two i imagine prolific writing and analyzing machine and uh, we're lucky to have him in our corner of the world 
Yeah, he's absolutely relentless. Uh, thanks to Tim. Thanks to everyone who's involved in getting the show uh, made each week from Bad Producer Productions. So Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards leading the team and Dave Collins who edits us diligently each time we publish. Thank you to everyone who has been part of Storytime on Nerd Pledge this week and indeed all of our patrons. As I mentioned at the halfway mark on the show... The details for our Stuart McGill live Zoom will be uh, coming up in, in a couple of days, but the best way to access that is by simply becoming a patron. If you like what we do, if you're enjoying Storytime or indeed the main program each week, jump on, drop us a message at patreon.com forward slash the final word. Thank you to everyone who's reviewed and rated us on iTunes. It may not sound like a big deal, but weirdly that has a relationship with how many people end up finding us here doing what we do. And last but not least, as always, uh, thank you, Jeff, for uh, having a chat with me late on a Friday night. I hope you enjoy your weekend calling uh, the Big Bash. And, and more importantly, I wouldn't say that there's something more important than calling the cricket, but there is this weekend. I hope for your sake uh, that Geelong sign off in style tomorrow. I, I hope so too. And I would like to thank David Squires for drawing the cartoon that led Ilya Andrews to the show. Well done, David. Um, yeah, that's it. We'll we'll be back with the regular weekly show around Tuesday or Wednesday next week uh, in your feeds. We're never quite sure what day it will be because you know we like to keep people on their toes. So we'll see you then. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about it, write it out. And-